pray for the Shepherd family as well. They are, they got something. I don't know what it was, but, uh, it's hitting them pretty good. So, uh, let's pray for them. Quick recovery. Praise God. And for this service, for everyone here, that God's will in this service would come to fruition this evening. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are an awesome God. We heap praise and honor and glory and worship under the Most High this evening. Hallelujah, Jesus. We acknowledge your absolute omniscience, your absolute omnipotence in this place. We acknowledge, Lord Jesus, that you are altogether able and completely willing to take care of our words for us this evening. Hallelujah, Jesus. We pray for Michael. We pray for Brother Brother. We pray for the Shepherd family. We pray for complete and perfect healing. Lord Jesus, you are our great physician. You created us. You can fix us. It is your desire. It is your perfect will. that we will see healing of you. Hallelujah, Jesus. The promises in the word of God, the stripes on your back, say exactly that. We claim our healing tonight in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For like our Lord, we pray specifically for his salvation. Hallelujah, Jesus. That you believe in the cords of love and your place of repentance. Repentance and the salvation. Hallelujah, Jesus. And for our service this evening, that you raise your wonders by your glorious by this place. That you raise your needs of your people of this present here this evening. That you grant them your name be glorified, and be magnified in this service. And in the lives of those present here this evening. Hallelujah, Jesus. We give glory and honor unto you. We worship and we praise you. We honor and we magnify you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are the King. You are the Lord. You are God in this and in every place. We acknowledge your absolute sovereignty here this evening. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity you've given us tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. God bless you. Thank you. You can be seated this evening. Praise God. We are continuing this evening on our topic of spiritual warfare. Uh, last week we talked about the nature of the world in general. We're going to revisit that uh, probably pretty quickly, not this evening, but we're going to apply all of that uh, and some other things toward the end of this series. Uh, so don't forget those. Amen. Tonight we're going to be talking about the nature of our enemy. The nature of our enemy. Genesis 22 and 17 says this. This is God talking to Abraham. That in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Amen. Now there are a few promises in here, and we've looked at it more in depth in other uh, lessons, talking about covenants. This is part of the Abrahamic covenant, of which we are a part of today. This is also a model for the church age. Uh, in here we find uh, we are to grow as a church, both spiritually and numerically. That we are to multiply as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is upon the seashore. Uh, we also say that God is going to be doing multiplying. 
We cannot save people. We cannot give people the Holy Ghost. We can convince them to come to church. Uh, we can convince them to sit down and do Bible study. But at the end of the day, this is between man and God. Just like it is between us and God. So God will do the multiplying. He will do the saving. We are to possess the gate of our enemies. And we will do that through the name of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, we find, we will find, that the two go hand in hand. We can't really have one without the other. In other words, without conducting a warfare, without conducting a spiritual battle against our enemy, we cannot expect to see the fruit of our labor. We cannot expect to see this land conquered. We cannot expect to see souls saved the way we desire to and the way God desires to save. This will be done through prayer and fasting. This will be done through spiritual warfare. And thus, the reason for the lesson. We are in war. We are waging a spiritual battle for all the souls. But for the souls of our family, the souls of our co-workers and neighbors, the souls of this city. That means, of course, that we are raising against someone else. We're raising against an enemy. We do have an enemy tonight that we are facing, that we're fighting, struggling against, and seeking victory over. Or rather, I should say, enemies. Plural. Because in actuality, the war we're is a multi-front war. We always war on many different sides, many different fronts, and our enemy will seek to use this to his advantage. We're not just facing right here. we got attacks coming from here, over here, back here. And we've got to be aware of all of that. And it gets to the point, maybe towards the enemy, it's nice and hard to Wow, if it's really all that, how are we even still here? Well, first of all, we want someone fighting with us, don't we? Amen. And without Jesus Christ fighting the battles for us, we would not have a chance to succeed. We would be overrun. But we're not overrun because we have someone fighting with us and fighting for us tonight. As a reminder, the design of the series is, is twofold. Uh, we want to focus less on theory, more on application. Uh, if we could say it this way, actionable intel is what we would like to see. Not just knowledge, not just information, but something that we can act on, something that we can apply to situations not only in our lives, but in those of others. Help us to see both the gravity of our calling and the great rewards waiting for us, if we'll reach out and take them by faith. These are both equally important to understand. One, the seriousness of the situation and the responsibility that we've been given as children of God to conduct this war. We need to acknowledge that. We need to accept that. We need to own that responsibility. But also, we need to focus on the potential that is out there when we lose war successfully, the potential is absolutely overwhelming. It's huge. What can happen if we give ourselves to God in prayer and in fasting? To conduct the 
matter of whether he desires us to. If we'll do that, if we'll submit ourselves to him, we give ourselves to him, the captain of the hosts of Israel, the Lord of hosts, is his name. When we submit ourselves to him as a God of battle, and we conduct battle in his name, the rewards are outstanding. The salvation of the city is ours for the taking. It's ours if we want it. God has given us the city. And I will continue to say that. As far as people that we're praying for, let's forget about the city for just a moment. Let's talk about our loved ones. Let's talk about uh, people that we live with, people that, that we're close to, that aren't here tonight, that aren't saved. Let's talk about them for a moment. God has given them to us as well. It is his perfect will for them to be saved. Amen? Does anybody doubt that? It is his perfect will for people everywhere to be saved. God has given them to us. Now that doesn't mean that they're just going to start showing up. We understand that. So where's the disconnect? What has to happen between A and B for this to, to come together? Well, that's what we're talking about. Prayer and fasting. War. Battle. In the United States, in this society that we live in, it's really difficult for us to start thinking in these terms. I get that. I understand that. Most of us, maybe even all of us, have never seen war, have never seen battle. We've read about it. We may have talked to people who have come back from war. But by and large, as a society, we are untouched by it. We've never experienced it personally. We've never experienced fighting in our backyard. We see it on TV. We read about it in the papers. But we've never experienced it. So when we start talking like this, when we start talking about battle and war and, and casualties and, and this and that, sacrifice and, and all of the things that pertain to war, we start talking like that and it can get a little above us. Something that theorycrafting people would talk about, but nothing that really applies. So one thing I'm trying to do is get us in the proper mindset during this series that as Christians, and we're going to talk about uh, the position that Satan holds tonight as the God of this world. This is Satan's world. That's what Scripture teaches us. We're not supposed to be here. This isn't our home. I should say it that way. We are supposed to be here. But this isn't our home. This is somebody else's home. It's not our home. We're leaders. We're pushing in. We're trying to conquer land that isn't ours to begin with. 
You look like you're thinking about that. That's okay. That's okay. Keep thinking about it. <laughs> I'm okay with Christian's thinking. That's good. But understand, as Christians, we're soldiers. We are soldiers. And we are here to fight. We are here to conquer. We are here to win. The enemy is here to do the same thing. And that's why I'm trying to push this so heavily and start getting us thinking in these terms. Because this is what the enemy thinks. The enemy thinks in terms of campaign. They think in terms of strategy and tactics. And it's all they do. Again, they don't get bored or distracted. They don't need vacations. They're fine to keep doing this until the end of time. So as Christians, we have got to start thinking along these terms. Nothing will happen spiritually without it. Without us first fighting a battle. Now one of the enemies, and the one we'll be talking about tonight, is the devil. Satan, that old serpent, however you want to call him. And most times when people talk about Satan in depth, we always want to give a disclaimer. I will do that tonight. We are not giving glory to Satan. We are not glorifying him. He's not worth it. But what we are trying to do tonight is seek to understand his origins, his nature, so as to better fight against him. That's all we're doing. The Bible says that we should not be ignorant of his devices. So we're going to learn those devices tonight. Ezekiel 28 verses 11 through 19. We read about Lucifer. So in verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone is thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed child that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up undone in the midst of the storms of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, thou filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, which shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth, and I will say, No, one will behold thee. 
All they that know him among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. There's nothing for you to here. We're going to touch on a few things, and then we're going to move on. The first thing we, I want to focus on with this passage of Scripture is that Satan is a creative being. Okay? A lot of people want to, when they talk about spiritual warfare, the, the fight between God and Satan, they want to match them up like they're on equal terms. They're not on equal terms. Not by a long shot. Not even close. There is no contest. That's why you're not fighting. Because Satan can't do anything to God. There's nothing he can do to him. He's untouchable. He's so far beyond Satan. There's nothing that you can do to God. But he knows that God loves you. So he's going to focus on you because he can do something to you. He can do something to me. So that's what he's going to do. But he is a creative being. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. Only God is. Satan is not. His demons are not. Now, they can probably travel really quick. I'll, I would say to everybody, I'd probably believe that. They could probably travel pretty quick. And they've got a good 6,000 years of practice in dealing with human answer. So they can probably figure out pretty quick what I might be thinking or how I react to a certain situation. Okay, they're very intelligent in a warped, uh, distorted sense. But they can't read minds. We read the Satan was created a perfect being. Just like anything was created. God doesn't create any perfect anything. He creates perfection. God is perfect. He couldn't create anything else. I'm imperfect. I can't create anything else. So he was created perfect. Sometime after his creation, we don't know how long. The Bible is not very clear on that. But sometime after iniquity was found in him, he sinned. The Bible says he became violent. He became proud. And his wisdom was corrupted. Sounds like what happens to us. When sin gets into our lives. Because of the sin God judged him. Again, rightly so. He is the perfect judge. He is the righteous judge. He has every right to do so. And after God judged him, he was cast to profane out of the mountain of God, and God vowed to destroy him. Well, here in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17, says this. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down from the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the earth. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They can see this and merely look upon him and consider him, saying, Is this the man who made the earth to tremble? 
that did seek kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and restored the cities thereof, that overlapped the house of his prisoners. We need some details of his being cast out of heaven. We see the height that he fell from. Now, you and I, we don't know what it's like to live in heaven. We have word pictures, we understand it's going to be a really, really good place. That's our, that's our home, that's our goal. That's where we're going to spend eternity, is living in, in the presence of Jesus. That's where we find our hope, that's what we look forward to. But we have no idea what that entails, really. The Bible says that, that we can see little through glass darkly, but then face to face. We get these, we get these glimpses and these, these, uh, these images that could come through time and again, but but we don't really have a full understanding of what heaven is. Satan did. Lucifer did. He dwelt right there in the presence of God. He dwelt in the physical presence of God. And he, he was he was in heaven. And then he was cast down here. Now I will look at creation. I will look at, especially in the summertime, uh, and I think it's beautiful. I think there's a lot of beauty uh, in creation. But thinking about it, I mean, when I look at like a landscape, I see the trailer, I see the, the, the clouds in the sky. I mean, it looks serene. It looks beautiful, like a painting. But the closer I get to it, the more I start finding some flaws, I start seeing dead trees rotting and decaying on the ground. If I get a little closer, I start seeing dead animals. When we used to drive back and forth from Eau Claire, my wife had every dead deer labeled on the side of the road. Every one of them. Yep, that was there last time. <laughs> Suddenly, bloating carcasses, bacon in the sun. Glad the window wasn't down. Beautiful little closer, we see insects and grubworms and eating other things. Death, decay. That's really what characterizes. Creation right now. Fallen creation. Bible says in Romans 8 that the creation groweth and travaileth in pain together until now. It's distorted, it's broken, it's, it's, it's shattered by sin and it's waiting to be restored. That's where he came to. He came from perfection down to here. All of this because of his pride. He desired two things. He desired to usurp God on his throne. He wanted to sit in the, the big chair. He wanted to be the number one. He wanted all the power and all the authority. And I tell you what, folks. Before I came to God, that sounded pretty good to me. 
If I had absolute power and authority over everybody and nobody could tell me what to do, that would appeal to a lot of people. It appealed to Satan. That's what he wanted. He wanted to call the shots and no one questions. The other thing he wanted was the worship that we gave God. He wanted that for himself. He wanted people to love and, and revere and adore and worship him as the Almighty. That's what Satan wanted. He didn't get what he wanted. His desires didn't really meet the expected end. He desired to receive the throne of God, but he was cast down to hell. He desired to be found and respected, loved and worshipped, yet when he is revealed, he's going to be found to be very underwhelming. Is this the guy? This is Satan. We're learning something about him tonight. His nature. John 8.44 says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the rest of your father you will do. He is a murderer from the beginning, and will be not in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh the law, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Narrowing it down here just a little bit, we read in earlier verses that, that Satan is violent. He's filled with violence. Now we're kind of focusing on he's a murderer. That's the end result of his violence. He's a murderer. And if he could, he would kill every one of us. He hates you. Absolutely. He hates you completely. I mean, that, that's all. There's one emotion that he feels toward you, and it's hatred. Utter, complete, all-consuming hatred. That's what he feels toward you. He's a liar and a deceiver. He will appear as an angel of light. He will appear however he needs to appear to lead you away from God. And Satan hates truth. And he'll do everything he can to destroy it. There is an absolute objective truth. It's called the Word of God. It's absolute because it's settled forever in heaven. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It applies to us today just as it did to the Egyptians thousands of years ago. And should the Lord tell you thousands of years, it will apply to society then. It will apply completely. It will apply directly. It is altogether applicable to all nations, all peoples, all cultures, and every time period. It's absolute. It's objective, which means it's outside of us. Whether I believe in it or not, whether I know about it or not, it's still true. And Satan hates that. And we see that in the world today. The manifestation of that in all of these world philosophies, all of these world religions... I mean, you can do pretty much anything you want. There's a smorgasbord of, of ideas and philosophies in the world, and any one of them is pretty much okay except this. 
as long as you don't serve Jesus Christ, you're good to go. You can serve Buddha, you can serve yourself, you can serve the government, you can serve Hare Krishna, you can serve Zeus. Uh, who cares? It doesn't matter. Satan doesn't care. As long as you don't serve Jesus Christ. Not according to scripture anyway. As long as you stay away from that, Satan's probably going to leave you alone. John 10, 10 says, The thief cometh not but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. That's what Satan does. That's what he's about. The end result of anything he does, says, or thinks is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus has come that we might have life. And that we might have it more abundantly. Okay, certain strategies. Second Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11 says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Okay, I kind of quoted that earlier. We need to be aware, we need to have an understanding of his wiles, his strategies, his tactics. How he is going to approach us. How he is going to conduct this war against us. We need to understand these things. We can use them in two ways. One, as defense against what he, what he does to us. When we see these attacks in our lives, we okay, I understand what's going on here. This isn't me being depressed. This is an attack of the enemy. Okay. Now I know, how to, now I know what to do. The other thing we can do is use, it as, use the information to, to our advantage against him. Understanding how he operates will not only help us in defensive, it will help us in offensive as well. Okay, the first strategy of his is temptation and then accusation. Okay, this is a big one. This is what he does a lot. Satan, we understand, is called the accuser of the brethren. But before he accuses the brethren, he's got to have something to accuse. And so he's going to come to us in a moment of weakness, when, when, in an opportune time for him, and he's going to whisper in your ear. He's going to plant thoughts. Now he doesn't know what they're doing in there, but he can plant them. And he'll wait, he'll wait for the response. He'll wait for the reaction. And if he gets it, he gets you dwelling at it and start moving toward that. Now he's sinned. Now he's not your buddy anymore. Now he's not your friend telling you, ah, just one time you'll be okay. Ah, no one will know. Don't worry about it. You deserve this. It's good. You know, he talks like that. And then as soon as you do, you're an evil, cruel sinner. What have you done? And you start feeling guilty. And you start feeling like, why am I even trying? I keep doing this over and over. And God's, God's going to be angry and upset. And he's going to go to God and he's going to say, <laughs> Look what I'm doing again. That's what Satan does. That's a strategy he uses against us. 1 John 2 and 1 says, My little children, this thing is written unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. 
Okay, the first solution is don't sin. Don't give in to the temptation. Don't listen to the enemy of your soul. He's not your friend. It's not good for you. You don't deserve this. Someone will find out. Don't believe any of that. But if you do, take it to God. Repent of that. God will forgive you. He'll have mercy on you. And get back up and keep fighting the good fight. Get back up and keep walking forward in Him. Don't let Him accuse you. Don't let Him beat you over the head with it. And I'm hoping He has a fear. Now, fear can take many forms. We can be afraid of failure. Some people are afraid of failure, and paradoxically enough, some people are afraid of success. Because if I succeed, like, let's take a job, for example. If I'm really good at my job, and my manager wants to promote me to a supervisor. And I'm like, oh, supervisor, oh, my word. Then I'd be in charge of people, and then I'd be responsible for all of this. Some people are afraid of that. And some people are so afraid of that that they'll start messing up. They'll start missing work. They'll start uh, throwing their reports wrong. Whatever they have to do to remove themselves from consideration. Then they're, oh, okay, good. Then the performance improves again. It's weird, but it's true. And I'm not just talking about responsibility. I'm talking about pure success in any area. Of course, we understand fear of failure. We're going to try something. We're going to tell you, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this done. And then something happens and it doesn't get done. We fail. We don't do it. We, we, we don't live up to the expectation we presented to, to those around us. And now we feel like a failure. Now we feel like, you know, we lied or, or we, we let people down and, and there, I should have, uh, Wrote that thing down that uh, most of you have heard of that uh, Teddy Roosevelt quote about uh, fearing or daring greatly. Those in the arena, I'll write it down and, and, and I'll have it for next week. It's an awesome quote. Anyway, the gist of it is I would rather that someone tries and fails then doesn't try at all. Because that's cowardice. And worse yet, being the guy that points out the person that failed and says, hey, see, I told you you wouldn't be able to do that. God help us if we got that spirit in us. That's the enemy. Don't do Satan's work for him. Don't be pointing at people and pointing their faults out and, and, ha, I told you you'd fail. Ha, I knew you wouldn't do that. Just because, just because I'm a small person and I'm not going to try it myself, I'm going to, I'm going to let everyone else know why. Don't do that. That's what Satan does. He points those things out and he causes us to be afraid. Fear of pain. 
If I do something, if I move forward, now this is this applies specifically to us as, as Christians. If I move forward in God, God might expect something of me I'm not willing to give. And we have that fear. Or he might put me for something that I'm not ready to face. And I'm afraid of that. We don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to be afraid of things like that. Fear of man. The Bible condemns having a fear of man. But having only a fear of God. We ought not be afraid of what man can do. We ought not be afraid of what man thinks of us. There's a saying... That I'll think of later. <sighs> That's why you write stuff down, Brother Parker. <laughs> Amen. Second Timothy one seven says, "For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind." If we're experiencing fear of any kind, it's not from God. It's not from God. God wants us to cast out fear. Perfect love casteth out fear. Joshua 1.9 says, I want to command thee. Be strong and have good courage. Be not afraid, neither be not dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, with a sovereign and ghost. We don't have to be afraid, because Jesus is walking with us. He's giving us the path. He's, he's making our paths straight. He's directing our steps. He's protecting us from, from all of the attacks of the enemy. He's, he's fighting this war, this battle with us. So we don't have to be afraid. We can move forward confidently and boldly. Amen. Doubt is another weapon that is used against us. Doubt's a what? We can get to the place where we doubt God's character. Does God really love me? Did God really forgive me? I've been there. Most new Christians, when they get when they first receive the Holy Ghost, they start wondering they actually receive the Holy Ghost. That's pretty common. Why is that pretty common? Because it's as strong as if it works. It works. So we don't let no Christians know, yeah, you got the Holy Ghost. You spoke in tongues. That experience... Let me back up a minute. When someone initially receives the Holy Ghost, you ought not tell them that they got the Holy Ghost. Let them tell you. Let them be assured of themselves that they got the Holy Ghost. After that... You can remind them. You told me you got the Holy Ghost. I, I was there with you. I prayed with you. I agree. You were right the first time. <clears throat> we can doubt God's promises. And we've talked at some length about this. Most of us don't have too much of a problem understanding that God can. The problems we have is 
Will he? Will he honor this promise for me? Will he do this for me in my time of need? That's what normally what we struggle with. The answer is absolutely. Absolutely he will. We can go God's word. We've got to be assured. We've got to be convinced. We've got to be persuaded that the word of God is absolutely true from cover to cover. If we're not persuaded, if we're not convinced, then we need to find out why. An honest intellectual will find out why. If you're coming into this from whatever belief system, and I tell you, God's word is absolutely true. It's true from cover to cover. You're probably going to have doubts. And that's fair enough. But be intellectually honest enough to get the right answers. There are all kinds of ideas out there. There are all kinds of philosophies, worldviews out there that seek to replace the Word of God. The Word of God stands in every area. I don't care how you attack it. I don't care how you dissect it. I don't care how you analyze it. It stands firm. There are no internal consistencies. There are no external consistencies with any, any part of reality. Everything meshes. So it's easy to defend Scripture in that aspect. You may not want to accept that. Nothing I can do about that. But, as presented, there's nothing you can say against it. It is absolutely true. We begin to doubt ourselves. Our relationship with God. Uh, am I a Christian? Am I, am I a child of God? Am I this thing that he's told me to do? I can't do that. Why, why is he asking me to do this? Why does he want me to go here? I can't do those things. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not, I don't pray enough. I'm not this. I'm not that. And we begin to look at ourselves and disqualify ourselves from the plan of God simply because I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. No, you don't. And you never will. You will never measure up. You'll never be good enough. You'll never earn a place in God's kingdom. Okay, we can agree on that. But that doesn't disqualify you from the plan of God. Not at all. When God asked you, he knew that already. He knew all of those things that you're telling him now. He knew you weren't good enough. He knew you didn't have this skill or that talent. He already knows that. He's asking you to do it anyway. He's asking you to go here anyway, even though you, you don't have the money. God's going to make the way. When we do ourselves, it's always, always for the wrong reasons. Okay. It's important for us to eliminate any doubts we may have because the enemy will use those doubts against us. <coughs> if you have doubts, there are, there are Christians that have honest doubts. Okay. I don't have a problem with, with, when Christians have honest questions. 
But get them answered. Find someone trustworthy and get those questions answered. The Bible says in Mark 11, 23, For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Matthew 14 and 31 says, And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Acts 10 and 20 says, Arise therefore and get the dead and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Acts 11 and 12, And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, my six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into, man's, into the man's house. God does not want us to have any doubt in our hearts or in our minds as to who he is or what he says, or what he wants. It's not his way for us to experience doubt in any of those areas. Okay? He wants us to be absolutely convinced, and he's made every way possible for us to be convinced if we'll open ourselves up to it. If we'll just be honest enough to listen and do the research. Okay? If, if that's what's required. This is important enough where we ought to spend a little bit of time on it. I believe that. If you don't have an answer to a question that someone asks you, I think it's important enough to do a little research and get the answer. Those questions are important. Questions are important. I had all kinds of them when I came to the Lord. I haven't heard any of this. I was born and raised Lutheran. I went to catechism. Graduated on top of my... Class thing, whatever you call it. Catechisms. But I didn't know anything. I didn't know any of this. So I had questions. What does this mean? Okay, so it says this. What, what, what do I do with that? Blah, 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 blah. And I always got an answer. I was, there was always someone there who could answer the question. And if there wasn't, either that person would go get an answer, or I find someone else. Folks, this is important. We've got to get this nailed down. And if it's not nailed down, we've got to get it nailed down. Discouragement. It's another one of his, his uh, weapons. When faced with our own failures and struggles, it's easy enough for us to get discouraged. When something in our lives just won't see the way go. We can't seem to get victory over something. We can get discouraged. And especially, especially when we start to cut ourselves off from the people of God, when we start cutting ourselves off from church services, when we start cutting ourselves off from prayer, from the Word of God, we're right for the picking. And you will get discouraged. You start to get discouraged, and that's when people want to quit church. That's when people want to back off from, from other people. That is the exact wrong thing to do. That is the exact opposite thing that we should do. But Satan knows how people react. See? He knows how people are. And so he uses it, and he uses it because it works. It works for him. 
When we get to a place where we're discouraged, don't do those things. Don't play into the enemy's hand. Come to church more. Pray more. Get into the Word of God more. Find a friend. Find someone close that you can trust, that you trust and that you're close to. Talk to them. Pray with them. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected aid. We don't have to be discouraged because the Lord has great things in store for us. Romans 8, 31 says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? God is for us. So no one can stand against you. No one, nothing can stand between you and God. That's a reason to, to not be discouraged, to be hopeful. First Corinthians 15 and 15 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And I include this verse because as Christians, we get, uh, Brother Parker would say, not busy, but <laughs> industrious. There we go. In the work of the Lord. And we get so industrious that we start letting other things go because we just don't have the time for it. And, or, we're doing something for God. God told me to do this. He, I have a promise. God, you know, and we're starting to feel hopeful and, and really energetic and, and we keep going and we keep going and we keep going and, and there's no fruit. We don't see any fruit. And we keep going and we keep going. We get start to get discouraged and we get tired. Maybe I didn't hear from God. Maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to do. And we start doubting and we get discouraged. This verse is meant to combat that. When we're in the plan of God, we're doing the work of the Lord. We're not always going to see fruit right away. And that is discouraging. <laughs> I'll grant you that. It only can get discouraging. But we have a hope. We have a promise that if we keep going... If we remain faithful to what the task God has given us, we're going to see the end results. We're going to see the fruit. We're going to see the rewards for our labor. If we faint not, our labor will not be in vain. So we can keep going without assurance, without hope. Distraction is another uh, weapon, especially, again, in this culture that we live in, the United States, this fast-paced 21st century culture. It's very easy for us to always focus on those things that are important, those things that God has given us to do. We've got all kinds of things going on. We've got all kinds of responsibilities in, in multiple areas of our lives where we're trying to coordinate and, and, and set aside time for. And it becomes easy enough to start setting some things on the back burner because of the urgency of these other things. If possible, our enemy will throw everything he can at us in an attempt to get our eye off the ball. There are things that we need to stay focused on as Christians. And they can't, we can't lose focus of those things. We are about kingdom business, first and foremost. That is what we're here for. Not just here in this building, but here in this life, on this planet. That is what we're here for. Kingdom business. To advance the kingdom of God where he planted us. That's what we're here for. And all of the other responsibilities that we have, all of the, the 
things that we need to get done. When I start using technical words like things, you know, I'm... I've straight off my notes. Um, we've got to stay focused on, on the things of God. If we don't stay focused on that, folks, nothing else is going to really matter. Nothing else will matter, not at the end of all things. If I focus, I've told this story before, and it's, it's a sad, tragic story. Uh, when I was in Minnesota, I worked at a, a manufactured home place, <laughs> doing drywall. And uh, the the plant the manager, he was 100% Highland Manufacturing. That was, the, that was the name of the company. He was 100% Highland Manufacturing. That was his wife. That was his children. He had a wife and he had children, but he had nothing to do with them. He was at the plant all the time. He got there at like 6 in the morning, stayed till 10 at night on vacations. He'd go out west and try to sell horses for the company. Didn't get paid for it. But this was his life. This is what he did. He was dedicated to this. As expected, his wife left him. His kids wanted nothing to do with him. And at the end of the day, his reward was, I'm sorry, Ron, we're going to have to let you go. Can you imagine that? After giving literally everything to that company, they fired them. Well, they laid them off permanently. I didn't really like the guy personally. He was shifty and you couldn't trust him. But I felt bad for Ron. I talked to him for a little bit. It was sad. He was devastated. As will be everybody that puts all of their eggs in the wrong basket. This is the right basket. This is what we're working toward, first and foremost. Proverbs 4, 25-27 says, Let thy eyes look right on. Let thy eyes look straight before thee. Pile the path of thy feet, and let thy eyes be established. Turn not to the right hand, nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. Stay focused on the path that God has laid out for us. Luke 10, 38-42 says this, now it came to pass as they went and entered into a certain village, and a certain woman on the earth that received him in her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was coming to her, much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bear it for what she wrote me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And that's exactly what we're talking about tonight. All of these little things that we have to take care of, a lot of which we take to ourselves for one reason or another. But we need to stay focused on that which is important, that good part. 
And that's serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Another thing that he has is lies, false doctrine, or substitutes. Satan has a substitute for every godly doctrine. Everything that God has instituted or ordained, Satan has a substitute. And it's probably somewhere close to the exact opposite, or flipped around. The Bible teaches oneness. He presents the Trinity. The Bible presents full illusion. So others come up with sprinkling. God presents general distinction. There shall be no confusion between the sexes. So in the world today, we have gender confusion, gender fluidity. The Bible presents absolute objective truth, so Satan presents us with subjective individual truth. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Some people don't understand how frustrating that is on how many levels. They've, anyway, they've completely redefined what truth means. Satan is the father of lies and will use scripture, albeit warped and distorted, to confuse us. Satan knows his Bible, folks. He knows scripture. And he knows how to quote it incorrectly. It'll be almost all true. It'll be mostly true, but there'll be a little bit of poison in there. A little bit of poison. If you look at a packet of rat poison, you'll find it doesn't take a lot. There's only like .0000003% poison or something crazy small like that. Which means it's 99.999997% good food. It's almost perfectly good food. But it'll kill you if you eat it. A lot of the things presented to us are almost perfectly good doctrine. Almost. But that little bit of error will kill you. Satan is the father of lies, and he will present it to us in any way he needs to to get us destroyed. We need to be careful where we get our information. Now, I love reading books of all kind. Uh, I don't read exclusively. One is Pentecostal books. Uh, I'll read A.W. Tozer, for example, E.M. Bounds. Uh, but I, I don't get doctrine from them. I will get encouragement. I will get uh, maybe a little conviction. But I get my doctrine elsewhere. But to do that, you've got to be a little bit well-versed in Scripture. You've got to be convinced of the Word of God. You've got to know it to the point where these doctrines, you understand when something's a little bit off. You can recognize the poison in the doctrine. Psalm 19.11 says, Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Psalm 9, verses 2 and 3 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, 
that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The perfect law of God is what brings life. Anything else will bring death. Okay. I didn't get quite through this. We're going to stop here. As we look at the, the nature and the character of Samuel, we find, to an exaggerated sense, a lot of characteristics that probably is to be in us. Now understand something. When we're dealing with people, when we're dealing with people, we love people. We minister to people. But we're going to see a lot of Satan in people. We're going to see hatred. We're going to see variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. We're going to see the, the, uh, we're going to see the works of the flesh in them. Because that's who they are right now. That's who I was before I came to God. I don't, I don't slight them anything. I don't judge them because they have no power over it. They need a savior. They need God. And so when we're dealing with people, please understand, uh, as, as we go through the study and we start recognizing, uh, who the enemy is and, and how he attacks and how he approaches and things like that, they're going to do that to us from time to time. Not all the time. Most of the time, they're pretty, they're pretty polite. They're pretty, uh, they'll, they'll have some questions. But every once in a while, you get someone that's a little bit more aggressive. That's okay. We don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to be intimidated by that. We have their answer. We have exactly what they're searching for what they need. And if they get up in our face about something, we need to understand where they're coming from. Why are you reacting so violently? Their home life might be a shambles. Their dad might beat them. Their mom might be an abusive alcoholic. We don't know these things. But we can't just take them in a vacuum and say, oh, they're a bad person. You know what they said to me? Well, yeah, they did say that. Yeah, they did do those things, but there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. And we're not, I'm not so focused or worried on their reaction or their words. I'm focused on where, where is their heart? Their heart is searching for God. The Bible teaches us that. Everybody knows that God exists. They'll tell you that I don't believe in God. That's a lie. They absolutely believe in God. In their heart of hearts, they believe God exists. They may hate God. They may despise him or, or his laws or whatever, but they believe in him. What they may not know is that they need him. They desperately need him. Just like you did, just like I did. And so, we're, we're going to see these characteristics in people. We're going to see anger, we're going to see violence, hatred, we're going to see uh, 
Lying. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. As a kid, I tried to get good at lying. I failed, but I kept trying. Bless my heart. <laughs> but they hate God. And their path to God, how they're going to get to God is because of us. Presenting God to them, ministering to them, praying and fasting for them, doing battle in their behalf. They have no clue what's going on spiritually. They don't have the first idea. We do. We understand these things. We have got to be proficient in fighting for them. Amen. Let's all stand.